Welcome to Poo Poo Pointless. It's good to be here. I'd like to thank my parents. Yeah. I'd like to thank God. Thank Uber. <laughs> yeah, I'd like to thank Uber a lot. <laughs> I would like to personally thank the Google Find My Phone app. <laughs> we visited a friend and we made mistakes. There were a few. Yeah. Cool. Let's play some darts. Episode 5, ladies and gentlemen. So if you've never listened to this show before, I'm Todd. I'm Sarah. And we like to talk to each other about random bullshit that we research too much, because we're both nerds, we both read too much and think too much, and Mm -hmm. very interesting, but not practical knowledge. You know, historical facts, conspiracy theories, serial killers, UFOs, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. So the first 15 minutes of the show usually are us talking about last week's story. So if you didn't listen to the last episode, skip ahead a little bit. And we'll have two very interesting tales, or at least very interesting to us because we're nerds and we're drunk. We're not drunk yet. Speak for yourself, man. <laughs> Today, our ridiculous way of passing the time while we fill in our stories from last week is we're playing darts because we should not be allowed on Amazon. And somehow this week we ended up with a dartboard and an inversion table. I know exactly how that happened. <laughs> and my back feels great. My back feels amazing yeah. and we can play darts. I feel great, yeah. To decide who goes first, this week's We Are Playing's The Darts. Someone's been watching too many letter skinnies. <laughs> <laughs> so, my story last time was the Hillsborough disaster, and it was miserably depressing. And the good news is that none of these updates are about horrible suffering and tragedy or death. Thank God. So, the location of the disaster was the Leppings Lane end of a stadium. So why is it called Leppings Lane? That's a great question. Right? Old, goofy English names love these. That's the name of the road that goes by that end of the stadium. And in the 1800s, Leppings Lane was literally just a dirt pathway that people would walk down. And ended up getting that name because partway along the dirt path, there was a river. It's called the River Don. And <laughs> it's not even the River Don like D-A-W-N. It's D-O-N. The River Don. <laughs> oh, I heard Dong. <laughs> <laughs> My inner 12-year-old okay. was laughing. It was called the River Don. Okay. And they hadn't built a bridge there yet at this point in time. And so the way you got from one side of the river to the other were big rocks sticking out of the water. And so you would jump from rock to rock, right? Do they call that lipping? Yeah, it was the leaping lane. Oh my god, stop. <laughs> <laughs> so stupid. That was the old English word for leaping. Oh my god, that's actually kind of sweet. Right? Yeah, that's wholesome. Uh, Sarah, round one, 26. Your trigger. Ooh. So my main update from last episode with Long John Baldry, it's actually my only update. Yeah, you covered Long John pretty fucking thoroughly. Thank you. I really adore him, so I tried to. So as he was fighting for his life, Rod Stewart, super distressed as a really good friend of his, kept a bedside vigil and was with him the entire time as he was passing away, and he actually paid all his medical bills too. So he left over for his partner. Isn't that sweet? Yeah. I was like, Rod Stewart! (laughs) I don't even like Rod Stewart. That's just, that's just, that's nice. That's heartwarming. Ooh. I got 27. Move along. Yes, sir. All right. I mentioned that right before the Hillsborough disaster, there was this guy, Brian Mole, the chief superintendent, like the main police mm-hmm. chief there. Brian Mole was a acknowledged, known national English expert of how to police football matches. Mm-hmm. And I said six months before the game, he got uh, Moved out of his position. transferred. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm not quite accurate. The thing that happened six months before the game was he got in trouble for something he really had nothing to do with. So mm-hmm. one of his rookies, one of his brand new police officers, mm-hmm. got lured to a remote location. I don't remember what it was, a bus stop, train station, something like that, at night. And then two guys wearing ski masks jumped out of nowhere and they had a gun. And so at gunpoint, these two masked men, they pulled his pants down. They took embarrassing photos of his junk. Oh, no. Yeah. Well, turns out it was two senior police officers. Yeah. They were literally just pulling a prank. It was hazing. Oh, 
flaws still, though. Well, so this rookie, he called and reported it. And everybody in the apartment got in trouble because I guess this kind of thing had been going on for a while. Mm -hmm. So in the end, four police officers had to resign. And there were seven who were disciplined and or demoted. The unfortunate part is Brian Mole kind of took the hit for it because it was his department. And he got transferred to Barnsley. And Barnsley's a tiny town. Mm Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like Hot Fuzz, where they transfer Simon Pegg out of London to wherever the fuck that town was in the movie. It's like a punishment. You don't lose rank, but you get transferred to a tiny, tiny town somewhere. It's kind of like what the Catholics do with rapers. (laughs) Hot take, hot take. (laughs) So I said it was six months before the match. No, the incident with the rookie officer was six months before the match. The transfer was 19 days before the match. Mm. So less than three weeks. History changing. Mm. Round two, series 47. (laughs) <laughs> Hot shit. Speaks to me. So because I'm amazing and I'm so thorough and I don't have a lot of updates, <laughs> the rest of my updates for the last episode are fun facts about poo. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, you mean like fecal? I'm not even kidding you. So, <laughs> Let's go, bro. Fun fact. Poo is mostly bacteria, not food. Um... <laughs> Okay. Yeah, 50 to 80% of poo is bacteria that was actually living in your gut, and it is ejected as food passes through it, and most of the bacteria are actually still alive. Oh, what poop's alive? Yeah. I see why you were laughing so hard <laughs> the other night. I was losing my shit. Remember I told you that? I told <laughs> Thanks, Dad. <laughs> oh, shit, you got a bullseye t- God, motherfuck. <laughs> I got 50. Okay. So... I mentioned there was a police officer who actually ran on the field and stopped the game. He was the first one who actually called it and said, this is bad. Mm-hmm. We need to stop this match. Didn't mention his name because I didn't know it at the time. Okay. Uh, his name was Superintendent Roger Greenwood. And he actually got a lot of heat after the event because he was the ground controller. So all the police officers who were there on the pitch, he was technically in charge of those guys. Mm-hmm. And so he was at all of the inquests and depositions and he testified at every trial. Never got pegged with anything, but he got... <laughs> He never got any charges, but he was the main guy down on the pitch, and so he was a big focus of sort of vitriol for the fans and families for a while. And here's the thing. I've listened to his depositions. I've read his account of the story. I've watched the footage of him on the match, and I think he's actually kind of a hero. Oh, okay. Unfortunately, he was working directly under Duck and Field, so he caught a lot of heat. But here's what he did. So Roger Greenwood, he saw that some of his officers were around that side of the field, and so he ran over there saw that there was a crush. He stood up on the gate and tried to motion for the crowd to get back. Mm. And then as soon as he realized they couldn't, he jumped down, ran over, opened the gate, and started pulling people out. And as soon as he realized that there were too many people and he couldn't pull them out, he ran back onto the field and stood up on one of those advertising placards they have out there because his radio was broken. Oh, no. And the officers were saying, we're not hearing anything from the box. So he stood up on the advertising placard, started waving his arms, looking directly up at the police control box, trying to tell Dickenfield to Mm -hmm. cancel the match. They don't say cancel the match. Mm -hmm. He can't flag Dickenfield. He sprints that onto the pitch in the middle of a semifinal cup match. And he's the guy who he was. He's the guy who grabs the ref and says, we got to cancel this game. I was wondering. So he caught some heat afterwards because he was part of the Sheffield police force. But from what I can see, he should have been in the box. From the footage, it looks like, yeah, he should have been in charge. Roger Greenwood. Clinks. I got 35. Not too bad. Not horrible. I'm awful at darts. Fun fact number two about poo. (laughs) Okay. Did you know that your biology affects Mm. your colon? I don't think my family got butt problems. No. uh, People who are born genetically as women tend to have whiter pelvises. It's what creepy old men call child-rearing hips. Yes. Your pelvis is whiter, and you also usually have more internal organs. Ooh, for reasons, Div. Which means that your colon sits lower, and your colon's actually longer, 
which makes it, as a genetic female, woman, lady, person, who was born with an XX chromosome, trying to not offend people, beep bop boop. <laughs> if you're a woman, it's harder to shit. It's literally, like, genetically harder to poop. Genetically, it's harder to poop as a woman. I do rib wicked poops, like, all day. Yeah. Without issue. You have a stronger, more efficient colon. Dudes have an easier time with efficient pooping. So I got big, wide power poops, and you've got these, like, small, less efficient, tough poops. Mm-hmm. But you didn't know that? I had never thought of it. I thought we all had the same buttholes. Nope. Different colons, different lengths, different uh, internal organs. Okay. 46. 46. Motherfuck. All right. Something we left out of the OG episode and also the pew. Mm. Phil Scratton is a critical criminologist oh. and also an author. Okay. Critical criminology is studying crime from, like, a critical standpoint. Mm -hmm. So he got his bachelor's and master's from the University of Liverpool. He's a Liverpool local. Mm -hmm. He got his PhD from Lancaster University in 1989, and the name of his doctoral thesis was Unreasonable Force, Class, Marginality, and the Political Autonomy of the Police. Oh, so he's been into this stuff. A long time. Yeah. Well, when he was doing his doctorate was when Hillsborough happened. So mm-hmm. he's had an interest in this academically and personally for a long time. So he should be like a town hero, in mm-hmm. my opinion. He's the guy who first uncovered the redacted and unredacted police reports. And he's the one who wrote that book, Hillsborough, The Truth, in 1999, which first published the fact that the police covered up shit. Mm-hmm. Hillsborough, The Truth is widely accepted as the definitive account of the entire disaster. And eventually, he was hired as the head researcher for the Hillsborough Independent Panel, who are the ones who eventually uncovered all the documents and vindicated the families. So Phil Scratton's a goddamn hero. Fucking Phil Scratton. Fucking Phil Scratton. Good. Uh, it looks like... You get 54. 54. Fuck yeah. All right, tell me your next thing while I attempt to ignore it. I know it's about poop. Poo poo point full. <laughs> Fun fact about poo number three. Why is poop brown? <laughs> Stercobilin. Stercobilin. It's a scientific word that I cannot pronounce right now. It is the byproduct of either hemoglobin that's broken down or it's bile. Which oh, is good. <laughs> Just fluid secreted into your intestines to digest fat. Fucking 34. This is trash. You distracted <laughs> the hell out of me. Uh, Not my intention, but a very fun byproduct. Like, boom! <laughs> <laughs> um, so I talked about the 1990 investigation. Uh, Lord Justice Taylor! His original investigation, he concluded it was the police, but he couldn't charge anybody, right? Mm-hmm. And the Hillsborough Independent Panel, which I just talked about with Scratton, were the ones in the early 2010s who kind of uncovered everything. Mm-hmm. I skipped a few, kind of in the middle, but some of them are interesting. So, in 1997, Lord Justice Stuart Smith <laughs> conducted an independent investigation. I love your British voice. As soon as I see Lord Justice, I'm like, I know, I Lord know. Justice! <laughs> so, he was like, I'm going to conduct an investigation. You know, he's going to reinvestigate Taylor's thing and, like, do more work. And nothing amounted of it. He basically said, oh, well, Taylor was right. The thing that kind of gave him away was just casually chatting to the press. He said... Well, are your people here yet, or are they like Liverpool fans, always turning up at the last minute? Oh, that's nasty. Yeah, that shows exactly how much of a shit he gets. Yeah. Now, in 2012, the uh, Independent Police Complaints Commission, who are a commission of people outside of the police who police the police, had their own investigation, which is the one that led to the current criminal charges mm. against, I believe, five or six officers and the secretary of the club at the time. Mm-hmm. So that one actually amounted to something. Also, in 2017, Prime Minister Theresa May, who I'm not a huge fan of, but she has done some good work, mm-hmm. commissioned a new report on the case with all the updated information from the last 20 years. And she asked that it be written by James Jones, 
who was the Bishop of Liverpool at the time mm. and is now a government consult. Mm-hmm. And he was the chairman of the Hillsborough Independent Panel. He wrote a whole report on the incident, and the title is The Patronizing Disposition of Unaccountable Power. Oh, that's like everything that I ranted about put in much more eloquent terms. Mm-hmm. So, James Jones. Also unfortunate that your name is Jim Jones, but we'll, we'll ignore that. <laughs> He goes by James. He goes by We're James. Fine. He goes by James Jones for a reason. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> James Jones. James. Uh, I got twenty. <laughs> More poop. <laughs> okay. Poop facts. Why can't you see corn in your poop? <laughs> <laughs> because your body can't digest corn. I don't know. Well, it can digest corn. It can't digest the kernel of the corn because it's made of cellulose, which is an indigestible plant fiber. So it actually protects the inside of your corn, so if you don't chew your corn enough, it just goes straight through. So here's the deal, ladies and gentlemen out there. If you're like, oh, I've seen corn on my poop, chew your damn food. Oh, you just missed the bullseye. I know. That's why I'm trying to distract you so I can get this corn. Cellulose poop. Shut! (laughs) (laughs) Oh, for God's sakes. (laughs) What'd you get? I believe that's 35. Yes, sir. I mean, I got 20 last round, so... So... The secretary of the club, Graham Mackerel, mm-hmm. he was not just the secretary, he was the safety officer of the whole club, mm-hmm. right? I said he was fined 5,000 pounds. It wasn't 5,000 pounds. Mm-hmm. It was 11,500 pounds. Oh, okay. So, uh, so the cost of life is slightly higher than we expected. Not that much higher, so here's why. The 5,000 pounds went to the court costs, so nobody prosecuting him had to pay fees. There was an additional... 6,500 pounds, mm-hmm. that's what went to the families. I did the math this time, the last time I ballparked it. So that was 67 pounds, 70 pence, mm-hmm. or about 87 bucks per family. Still it's fun. still fucked, but it's more than I said. Yeah. Okay. What'd you get? So uh, my point was 20 again. All right. More poop. <laughs> <laughs> kind of leading back to the first fact, pooping mostly bacteria That's why, new science, poop transplants are actually a thing. We can do poop transplants? Yeah, we transplant poop from healthy people into not healthy people, and it actually helps them. The bacteria helps their biome? Mm -hmm. Oh. So they take poop from a healthy person, they transplant it into a sick patient, and it helps build beneficial bacteria, because poop is mostly bacteria, sometimes alive. Indeed. And it can help with Crohn's disease, multiple sclerosis, depression, obesity, multiple allergies, and diabetes. Fun fact. Yeah. Poop! How'd you do (laughs) <laughs> Poorly. You did better than I did, motherfucker. So. 36. I believe, yeah. So my next update is not a fact, but it is an audio clip. And that's because the Liverpool fans in tribute to the 96 and also in the fight for justice have a song they sing at many games. And I'm just going to play it. Take a shot, champ. Okay. That, that was mean, I know. <laughs> that was really mean. Well, I didn't talk about the chant. I remember that. It's like a thing mm-hmm. that they do. Uh, this round, I got 33 and fuck Todd. Ah, so what's your next fact? More poop facts. Shout out to KK. You mean Curdy Burger? Shout out to Curdy Burger. Curdy Burger. Um, she <laughs> is tasteful. She is currently pregnant. She's pregnant and I'm pregnant. <laughs> Anyways, shout out to KK and Smashbird, because baby poop is bizarre. Baby poop is weird? Yeah, so it's usually odorless. 
Yeah. Well, Listen, I mean, I've... Right Not when they come around. out. Right oh, when they come okay, out. It's usually okay, odorless. Okay, okay. Newborn baby poo. Newborn baby poo. I was going to smell baby poo. It's odorless, green, and tar-like. Like sticky? Mm-hmm. Uh, because it's made up of amniotic fluid, blood, skin cells, and mucus. That's all the crap they don't need now that they're born. Mm-hmm. Weird, Isn't that weird, dude. I never knew yeah, that. Yeah, it makes sense. They've been digesting nothing but like what they can get through the placenta, basically. Right. And when they first come out... They're like, let's get rid of this crap. Yeah. They got Taco Bell out here. <laughs> <laughs> what was your score, dude? Um, You're going to want to check it. I'm not sure if I did the math. But right. fucker! <laughs> Bullseye! Is that 50? So that would be a 73. Yes, sir. So my next update is for a very good friend of ours and a listener of the show, uh, Miss Kenzie. Oh. She, she suggested that we should cut together every time in the Shark Week episode that we said the word wabigong. Good dude. And so I fucking did. Okay. Wabigong, 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 so what'd you get? 60. Still doesn't beat you. Hey, not bad, though. Okay. Neil fucking Armstrong. <laughs> like, first man on the moon, Neil Armstrong? Yep. First man on the moon. He left four giant bags of poop behind on the moon. Himself? <laughs> <laughs> like, not the whole crew, but him by himself? No, just, just pooped him. that much? Just him. So he left four <laughs> defecation collection devices. Hell yeah, good men poop a lot. Yeah. I'm not biased. There are four <laughs> bags of Neil Armstrong poop on the moon. <laughs> I fucking love that. I thought you would enjoy that. Can you spot him with the telescope? I want to look for Neil's poop bags. <laughs> Again? Uh, well, hold on a sec. Whoa, fuck me, what? <laughs> <laughs> okay, what'd you get, babe? I got a bullseye and a double bullseye. And a one. Me Just too. to be a little cutsy, I got a one. <laughs> God, I hate you. Okay, well, your total was 377. Mine is 295. So you... I... Get to choose. Yes. Sarah, I will go first. Motherfucker. Okay. Did you want to go first? Nope. Did you want to go first? Nope. Sarah! What? I will go first. (laughs) (laughs) You absolute tart. (laughs) Tell me a story. Tell me a story. Tell me a story. (laughs) All right. I'm going to tell you today about the amen break. A man? Men? The amen break. Is it a break for men? Because I think you guys have enough. No. I'll explain that in a second. (laughs) But first and foremost, my primary source for this, and actually the thing that got me like really interested in this subject in the first place, is a documentary, not a video documentary, but an audio-only documentary Hmm? by a really cool guy called Nate Harrison, and it's called Can I Get an Amen? Okay. So the Amen Break is the most widely and prolifically sampled and reused sound in music history. Okay. You've heard it a thousand times, I guarantee you. Okay. There's a really cool website called whosampled.com, mm-hmm. and you can yeah, look yeah. you can look up any song, and it'll tell you if any of the sounds in that song are from another song. So if you look up the original song, whosampled.com cites, as of yesterday... 4,678 songs that use the Amen Break and counting. If I check today, there'll probably be 10 more. Holy shit. And the good news about this episode 
is that I think I can get away with including some examples. Okay. Because when we did Long John Baldry, mm -hmm. I was really stoked because his music's really cool. And I was like, maybe I can throw a few clips in the episode. But of course, there's copyright issues. Mm -hmm. And this is a free podcast. We, we mm -hmm. do this for fun. I don't want to risk us like losing our home because we wanted to play a little blues music. Yes. <laughs> copyright law is very crazy. But I think I can get away with it in this one in certain instances. Okay. Because every clip I'm going to play today includes a stolen sound. I'm really relying on the goodwill of people right now. <laughs> and I'm only going to play short clips, mm -hmm. all containing this stolen sound. Let's get at her. Please don't sue us. We're not rich. No, I've got three cats and a dog. If somebody has an issue, just email us. We'll edit the episode, okay? Love you. Bye. So, on to the story. Cool. So, this tale starts in the 60s with a guy called Richard Spencer. Not the racist guy. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> not that asshole neo-Nazi guy on TV these days. Okay. Yeah, he, was, he was a black man in the 60s. Okay. And he was a rhythm and blues musician. Mm -hmm. He played piano and tenor saxophone, among other instruments. And he was a member of various bands around the Washington, D.C. area at the time, which had a pretty well-established music scene. So among his early credits, Richard Spencer, not the racist, he played in backing bands with Otis Redding. Oh, I love Otis Redding. As well as Curtis Mayfield and the Impressions. Mm -hmm. Old school R&B, soul, gospel kind of mm -hmm. stuff. He met a lot of musicians while participating in these bands. And so in 1968, he formed an R&B band called the Winstons. They were a mixed race band, which was kind of significant at the time. So about half the musicians were black and half them were white because they were just random dudes he'd met in the music scene. Mm -hmm. Especially for an R&B band at yeah, the yeah. time, that was pretty progressive. They weren't the first at anything in particular, but yeah. it was just cool to see and that wasn't common. So they released their single in 1969. I knew, I knew, I knew. Literally when you said the 60s. I, <laughs> yeah. Well, here's the more significant thing. I can find the date 1969, fit that in anywhere. I couldn't fit it in anywhere in my story. <laughs> the, the thing that's cool about this story is the recording we're talking about, the entire story is from 1969. Mm, damn it. Okay. Okay. So their single from 19 double oral was called Color Him Father. Hmm? And Color Him Father is a funky and well-played, but kind of calm and very soft song. It's kind of beautiful, actually, because it is a tribute from Richard Spencer to his stepfather oh. about accepting him as his father. Oh. As an adopted kid, I love that. That's, mm -hmm. that's really sweet. Right. I can't play it. Uh, and the reason for that is a good reason. It's because that was a hit at the time. Mm -hmm. It made number seven on the Billboard charts. And uh, number two on the R&B specific charts. Mm -hmm. And in 1970, it won a Grammy Award for Best R&B Song. You'll find that on classic soul hits and yeah. shit like that. So the Winstons, after releasing that single, they released an album also called Color Him Father. Mm -hmm. And it did okay, but unfortunately, they never had another hit after that. Yeah. That was their big one. They didn't have another single off that album that made any money. Yeah, I never really heard of them. Right, no, someone who's really into but that the, genre. The, the Winstons were all into the R&B yeah. scene. The musicians knew a lot of the people. Like I said, Otis Redding, Curtis Mayfield. Kind of like, like Long John Baldry. Exactly. You never heard of him, but he's everywhere. Well, they didn't have a hit after that. So after that album, mm -hmm. without releasing anything else, they just broke up and went their separate ways. Okay. So that was sort of the end of the Winstons. They had an album and one good song. Mm -hmm. But unbeknownst to them, they had already left an indelible mark on pop music culture that would last for decades because... Yeah, I'm flummoxed. I'm trying to figure out, like, what you're talking about. <laughs> because the B-side of Color Him Father, that song... Mm -hmm. So for our younger listeners, back in the day when you had to buy a fucking album to listen to songs... Do you just explain a B-side? Oh my god, you I do. have to explain a B-side. Oh, good lord. Well, these kids all listen to freaking SoundCloud. So when you bought an album, it was a physical disc 
and there would be two sides, A side and B side. So the A side was the song you wanted to hear. So mm-hmm. you'd buy that to listen to it. And the B side would be like a bonus song that you got because you could print on both sides of the album. Mm-hmm. So the B side to Color Him Father was sort of this bright, funky, upbeat instrumental song. And they basically improvised it on the day of recording because they had to record a second side and they had nothing prepared. And so on the day they improvised this song and just played it as a band. It'll fill out three minutes on the, the B side. You know, yeah. yeah, exactly. And the song is called Amen Brother. And it sounded a little something like this. So, it's a really groovy song. It's really fun. Mm-hmm. It was not a hit. It was the B side of that single, and I think it was like track twelve on the I would album totally release. To that yeah, no, it was super fun. But like, <laughs> there's nothing to latch onto. Also, no, 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 weird. exactly. A lot of people are very vocal focused, and they, they need a story to mm-hmm. be told. Color Him Father was a big hit, but that one was not. Yeah, and they're not remembered for that song either. So why is the song so goddamn important? Yeah. Well, yes, because halfway through the song, their drummer Gregory Coleman does this. this. Does that sound familiar? I've heard this. Mm-hmm. A thousand Fuck times. Fuck me sideways. Okay. Tell me more. The Amen Break, which by the way, it's called that because it's a drum break. Mm-hmm. It's sort of like a drum solo. Yeah. But the thing with a drum solo is, drum solo is like, brrrr. a drum break is just everyone takes a break, lets the drummer play like yeah. he normally does, but nobody else is distracting Yeah. from the drum. I feel like a solo, there's usually still some backing. Yeah, a solo, there's some usually bass, like one other guy, a, yeah. one other guy playing. Yeah. A solo that, is like highlighting somebody, a break is literally a nobody A break is plays. everyone takes a break and just, let, and just lets the drummer carry the song. Everyone just shuts up. Mm-hmm. That's why it's called the Amen Break. So Amen Brother... Never got much attention. It was the B-side of a one-hit wonder band. Nobody cared. That's how it remained for nearly 20 years. A forgotten B-side on vinyl records stored in basements and attics and shit. Somebody would play it and be like, I kind of like that song, but nobody thought about it, right? Flash forward to the mid-1980s. Okay. And the most important juncture of this story is the invention of the sampler. Mm, Okay. Because we all take for granted now you can record and play back music at will. You know, you got DJs and yada, yada, yada. Before the 80s, if you heard a recording, it was live musicians playing. Yeah, I don't remember a lot of, like, samples. There was no easy way to do it. You could do something where you recorded an instrument and then recorded over it with another instrument. You know, Mm -hmm. of course you could by then, yeah. Like, you could re-record, but everything you heard was live. You couldn't really easily, and most importantly, cheaply and publicly available, Mm -hmm. grab a little clip of a song and then use it to make a new song. So, the sampler comes along in the mid-80s, and now samplers, it's all software, right? But back in the day, the sampler was a physical thing you would go buy. About the size of a VCR. Oh, okay. Or for our younger listeners who don't know what a fuck a VCR is, it was about the size of a briefcase. And for our younger listeners who don't know what a fucking briefcase is, <laughs> go fuck yourself. <laughs> a two foot by one foot by about three inch tall rectangle? Yeah, it's a big ass box. And so what you could do is you could plug it into a turntable and take samples of records. Mm-hmm. Well, so this is the birth of hip hop. Yes. Is the sample. I was going to say, I remember this being huge. 100%. And by hip hop, by the way, I don't mean rap. Rap is the lyrical form. People think hip hop and rap mean the same thing. Rap is clever rhythmic lyricism. Hip hop is the music form. Mm-hmm. And I think 
That's an important distinction because DJing is kind of an unsung art form. If you name the most influential hip hop people, most people will name the rappers. They won't really mention the DJs, mm -hmm. but the DJs are the ones who composed the song. And in yeah. the early days of hip hop, the way they would compose the song is with a sampler. And they would have to find interesting sounds to feed in, cut them up, loop them over and over again, and use those samples to make a new composition. Mm -hmm. And these DJs looking for interesting music loops were scouring old vinyl records. And a lot of the times, because these weren't rich guys, yeah. they were looking at their grandpa's record collection, their uncle's record collection, these dusty old vinyls, mm -hmm. and they were using them to try and make new songs. So the song Amen Brother by the Winstons after 20 odd years was finally rediscovered. Mm -hmm. I don't have a good source for who found it first, uh, I assume there's multiple people, mm -hmm. and what these early hip-hop producers, DJs, just trying to find something that would sound really cool behind their buddy who can rap, realized is that the Amen break is the perfect drum loop. It loops well, first mm -hmm. of all. You can just loop it over and over again. It sounds good. Yeah. But also, the timing on the drums is really good, because it's not just like, boom, boom, bop. Boom, boom, bop. The drummer's a little funky. He delays little notes. He hangs back a little bit. Or he plays a note faster than it should yeah. be. And that's what makes things funky. It's a little raw. It's a little ragged. It's a little it's, off. It's a little swingy, mm -hmm. you know? And then also, the entire time the drummer's playing, he's slapping that ride cymbal, which means that you can cut it and loop it. You can cut it and rearrange it. And there's this constant sound that kind of covers the cuts. So smart. And so here's that same loop I just played you, but I cut the part where the rest of the band was playing horns and guitar and such. And this is just the loop. Okay, totally get that. That's a fucking treasure trove. If you're an early producer trying to look for like, yeah. like loops that work well. The other thing that early hip hop producers kind of realized is that loop sounds fucking incredible. If you slow it down, not by a lot, 20, 25% maybe, and boost the bass. And if you do that, it sounds like this. Right? Oh, that is tasty. So you've heard that. Um, so <laughs> Stoked. this loop became sort of like the sound of hip hop in the 80s. Yeah. It's the beat. It ended up on a few sample kits because you could buy these tapes of samples from different albums. Wound up on a bunch of those. I'm just, um, my body is just bouncing to that beat. Like uh, that's a very natural heartbeat kind of sound. It's like somebody punched you in the face with funk. Yeah. Right? But it's just one guy drumming. It's just four bars. And it's, yeah, you're still I, dancing. I can't stop. You're dancing thinking about I it. I know, I know. Okay. Because I know this sound. All right. It's on like every good hip hop record from the 80s. <laughs> to name a few, the Ultramagnetic MCs, Rob Bass and DJ Easy Rock, the Ghetto Boys, Two Live Crew, mm -hmm. Heavy D and the Boys. They all utilized this drum line. Now, here's the thing. I was looking for the first hip hop group who really utilized this beat in that way. The earliest sample I can find is an all female hip hop group. You might recognize the name Salt and Peppa. Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, Salt and Pepper was three women, uh, two rappers and one DJ. Mm -hmm. And this is their track from 1986 called I Desire. Yo, wait a minute. Yeah. I want y'all to hear. My rap is not a joke, joke for us. It's a career. Others try to imitate, but none has come I can't play too much of it. You, you were know. blowing my mind. Right, 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 right. Everything um, is a lie. 
So did you notice they didn't just do the drum loop? They threw the horns in there too. Yeah. Did you hear that? Yeah. That tells me that Salt and Peppa's DJ at the time, her name was Latoya Hansen. It's fucking fantastic. She didn't just get that loop off a sample CD. She was one of the ones who found the B the side. Actual, oh. Because the sample CDs were just that drum loop I played you. So she had the actual Winston's... She, she created that song from the Winston's B-side because you hear oh, that she sampled the horns from yeah. earlier in the song. But then, like I said, after that, it ended up being shared around just the drum loop and being used a lot. Now, mm-hmm. I could just play you hip-hop songs for the next two hours because there's, there's hundreds of songs that use this. I can't stop um, moving. So that was the earliest use of it that I could find. Now I'm going to play you the most popular and recognizable use of that clip. Needs no introduction. It's from 1988. The best year ever. too much of it. (laughs) (laughs) Cool. Oh, I love this. Probably the most important example for this story is not that one, though. That's the one everyone knows. Okay. The most crucial moment that this sample had in its lifetime, I believe, is also from 1988, but it's best year ever, right? Mm -hmm. It's from a group called Mantronics. I'm just, I'm imagining the robot ladies from Austin Powers with the boob pistols. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but like dudes, and so instead of boobs, it's coming out of his... Ah, dick lasers. Yeah. Honestly, like... Did you not think of dick lasers? If you'd have told the members of Mantronics in the 80s that it made you think of dick lasers, they'd be like, yeah, that's what we were going for. They were great. They were a hip-hop group, but they were very sort of electro-inspired, like Africa Bambata, this old school mm, electro I beat. love Africa So they were okay. sort of bordering on electronic music, but they were rooted in hip-hop. Mm-hmm. And the very important thing that they did is instead of just taking this beat and just slowing it down, speeding it up, whatever, they cut it up into little sections and they rearranged those sections to make new beats. Okay. And so this is the first example I could find of this being done. Mantronics is very pioneering. So you now know that beat pretty well. Mm-hmm. I played like a thousand yeah, times, yeah. right? So they chopped it up and rearranged it and they made a song called King of the Beats. And it sounds like this. It's the same drums, it's the same loop, but they just chop it up and rearrange it and they make new sort of patterns out of it. That was cool. But the thing is, the Amen break eventually sort of fell out of favor in hip-hop production because technology got more advanced, Mm -hmm. synthesizers and drum machines were more commercially available, and so they didn't need to rely so hard on samples. They could create their own compositions with keyboards and production studios, and hip-hop got big, they had money. And so the sampling of old vinyl records kind of fell out of favor, so the Amen break kind of dropped off in American hip-hop, and that's kind of why you don't hear it in hip-hop songs today. But that's not the end of the story is now we're going to fly across the pond Ooh. to England. Okay. I always end up at England. Somehow. Yeah, you got, you got some bias here, my dear. Uh-huh. Well, I mean, I'm a bit of a Brit. So in the late 80s and especially the 90s, England was the hub of the burgeoning electronic music scene. Oh, yeah. Now, for our younger listeners, you call it EDM. <laughs> but back in the late 80s, early 90s, they called it rave. Yeah, I was obsessed it's ra- with rave music. It's rave music, right? Yeah. So the DJs in England were operating in much the same way as American hip-hop DJs. They were trying to find sounds they could use to loop and sample and make more and more interesting and funky and danceable electronic music. You were saying that, like, the DJs are kind of the unsung heroes of, like, 1980s hip-hop scenes. Mm -hmm. Whereas I think now DJs are such a huge music influence. 
EDM DJs are like superstars. Oh, you mean white DJs? Yeah. Now, yeah, there's EDM festivals. You go there and there's 50,000 people on a big stage, but that was not a thing. What it was was an underground music scene. Mm -hmm. And so you'd go to this sweaty, shitty bar and you'd go downstairs to the basement. There'd be one guy up on stage. He'd have turntables Mm -hmm. and he'd be mixing these interesting sound samples together. I love this. So uh, around the same time, it kind of started falling out of favor in the US. The British early electronic music DJs found the loop. Okay, So I wonder how it got over there. Well, a big part of it was Mantronics, that song I just played where they yeah. cut the loop up. And they heard that and they're like... There's other examples. I'm not saying this. they all found it through Mantronics, <laughs> yeah, but that was yeah. a pioneering moment. And that record did make it across the pond. That makes sense. They sort of had the same realization that American hip-hop producers had. That, the, that This beat is incredibly versatile. It loops really well, and you can cut it up and shift it around, and it sounds really cool. The early British electronic musicians, they took this and used it and mixed it up and resampled it and shared it so many times that there are distinct genres of electronic music entirely based around the Amen break. So, for example, drum and bass. So here's an example of drum and bass electronica. Uh, This is one of the earliest examples. It's from 1991, and it's called We Are I.E. by Lenny D'Ice. That's just the Amen cut up. Mm-hmm. But there's thousands of drum and bass songs. You can hear it, yeah. There's also Jungle. I'm sure you've heard a bit of Jungle. Pretty big fucking genre. And Jungle is entirely based around the Amen. And this is a pioneering Jungle song. It's from 1994 by Shia Fex and UK Apache. It's called Original Nutta. You never know UK Apache, Rudy Jungle. Where did everybody want to know, man? Me a day Nutta, original, mad, 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 Nutta, original, man, 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 if you hear that little ride symbol, that's the Amen. Sped up and cut up. It's always been the Amen. It's everywhere. It's everywhere. And I've got more examples. What? It's also one of the foundational samples used in what has come to be called intelligent dance music or IDM. The idea. <laughs> wait, 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 wait. That's a thing? It's a thing. It's been a thing for about 25 years. What is unintelligent dance music? EDM. <laughs> Stop. Wait, the They've actually, like, sectioned themselves out as being like, oh, you're unintelligent over there, but we're extremely intelligent. Well, I mean, well, well, here's the thing. The DJs who actually make IDM hate that word because... I would assume so. It sounds so presumptuous. Yeah, it's It's pretentious It's it's dismissive, right? Extremely. No no DJ who makes quote-unquote IDM calls themselves that. So who came up with the term? A little prick who listens to it and jacks off? Yeah, yeah. Music reviewers, yeah. (laughs) Literally, a little prick who listens to music and jacks off. You you just summarized music critics. (laughs) Basically, the term intelligent dance music was invented to describe electronica that had become so progressive and sort of jazzy that it's not really danceable. You don't listen to this because you're going to the club to dance around with your friends. You listen to this quietly by yourself because it's interesting and complicated. Okay. So sativa weed smokers listen to this. Not the indicus. Exactly. Yeah. I know exactly who you're talking about right Um, now. And so the best example that I have is one of the earlier ones too, the 1996 song Tundra by Square Pusher. You're not playing that for hot bitches to dance. You're playing that because... It's the progressive middle of it's the It's the jazz of electronica. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's usually sort of chiller. Like, you want to sit down and kind of listen to it and kind of get absorbed in it because it's complex. I do listen to music. They found a way to make the most accessible, universally loved and accepted drum yeah. beat sort of creepy and advanced and jazzy. Yeah, they yeah. distorted it. They put a really good funk beat on its axis and we're just like, bleep, 
something went off here. And so later in the 90s, it wasn't quite as foundational as it was to Jungle, but the Amen was used quite heavily in the Big Beat genre. <laughs> the Play bi- me more music? Bi- Big Beat kind of got shit on by the older electronic DJs because that was the stuff I just played to. It was all very sort of complex, very fast, blah. Yeah. And Big Beat's very poppy. Half of the soundtracks to like movies like The Matrix is Big Beat music. It's basically taking a lot of those same samples and concepts, but making them slower and catchier. Like anybody can dance to Big Beat. They stretched them out and made it likable. It was simple, easy to produce. It was catchy. It was poppy. It sold a lot of records. And so, so disco. Kind of. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> a lot of DJs got kind of butt hurt. Like, I spent 72 hours making this breakbeat IDM song. And you just looped a sample and rapped over it. Mm-hmm. And then you, and then you, you got a million album sales, you know? So one of the best examples of the big beat genre is The Prodigy. Okay. Here is their 1997 track, Mindfields. You might recognize the beat a little bit. It's still cut up, but it's just slower. Yeah, what? Wow. All right. Continue blowing my mind. So after all of the early American hip-hop producers had adopted the Amen, and in Europe, an entire music genre with several distinct subgenres had adopted and loved the Amen, it sort of expanded worldwide. And then also throughout all genres of music, the Amen's been used not just in EDM and hip-hop, it's been used fucking everywhere. So, for example, here is the 1997 track Little Wonder by David Bowie. What? What? Rest in peace, David Bowie. Sir, David Bowie. Sir. Mm. And I might mention, he got very big in Japan. It got massive in Asia. You can still hear it in K-pop and J-pop today. What? Because it was the Western sound. That single beat, those drum loops, those samples were the sound of modern Western music. What? And again, there's a thousand examples and I can keep you here for three hours. I'm going to play one of my favorites. It's from a Japanese punk band called the Mad Capsule Markets. And the song is called Pulse. hear it yes for my fellow millennials you may remember that being on the soundtrack of tony hawk's pro skater 3 <laughs> you've heard it a thousand times i'm literally speechless this um, is like a real like conspiracy theory it's not a conspiracy no, no, it's, it's just it's proof just real like i said who sampled has 4678 entries for this one sample so the <sighs> amen break sort of fell out of pop culture favor in the 2000s mostly because it was overused it was sort of a cultural meme i could see that it became um, sort of cliche kind of outdated it was the 2000s folk gang i don't know what that phenomenon is oh called but God. it's the hey hey ho! yes we've got 18 members in the band yes and then everyone says hey ho in the background there was that jesus guy it was like i'm not a cult leader and his band of cult members yes Edward Sharp and the Magnetic Zeros. Yes! Where she fell out of a window and... I actually liked that song when it came out. And I then I got, like I got really mad because in the following two, three years, there were like 10 songs that were hits that sounded exactly like it. Yeah. And they all sounded the same. Lots of reverb and yes. the whole band went, hey! Yes. 
Oh, yeah. Yeah. Hey, that was a different, different band. Weirdly enough. Similar thing where like those songs and those bands all became popular because we were so used and comforted by that specific sound using the Amen made sense because it became a comforting sound and like, a, a familiar sound. If you walked in and heard a song never heard before. Yeah. But, but the you, amen's but there. But you heard even just elements, even little snippets, the snare, the I, bass. I never heard that Japanese punk band and it felt familiar. I oh, can, yeah. I, I can, can keep listening to this and I can jive with this because I'm like, that is a familiar sound well, that, That's me. why they like throwing it into their songs. This is like the phenomenon of the hey-ho, though. It's this little snippet that makes you feel comfortable and recognizable. It's like the mid-2000s stutter. Yes! Poker face. Yeah! Yeah, the yes. mo- is that. But the it, Amen break is way cooler. Well, the Amen break has more roots to it. The millennial stutter yes. is a yes. thing that was around for like four or five years. Yes. The hey, ho, was around for like two, three years. But this is from 69 to, I'm assuming, <laughs> Yeah. It's from 69 till the foreseeable future. Yeah. It was huge in the late 80s, huge in the 90s, huge in the early 2000s. By the mid 2000s, it kind of slumped worldwide. Mm-hmm. And mostly because it was overused. It was passe. Yeah. We'd all heard it a thousand times. And really what killed it is advertising. Mm, Advertising kills everything. You know, sort of in the background of commercials, they have this white noise kind of music, right? Mm -hmm. So when somebody's like, well, here's our sales event in the background, they'll be like guitar, a little bit of drums or something. So it started to get used in commercials as the background noise because it was a recognizable beat Mm -hmm. and they were pandering to Gen Xers. Yep. Grew up with this sound. Teens and 20s were in Mm -hmm. the 90s, Mm -hmm. right? Advertising like home loans. I'm so mad right now. And cars and shit. Motherfucker. God. Yeah, once it's in a Jeep commercial, for fuck's sake, it's kind of not cool anymore. Well, but here's the thing. It never left. It never died. It never stopped getting used. Amen never does. It was just no longer hip. Mm -hmm. It was no longer the cool sound. It's still used incredibly frequently in various genres. There are popular drum and bass DJs today. There are popular jungle DJs today. Breakcore is sort of a newer genre. It was founded out of the ashes of the original British movement. It's entirely based on the Amen. It's still used by modern, big, fancy, rich EDM guys who are at festivals every once in a while just to throw a little snare hit or something in. It's sort of a callback. It's also used in a lot of throwback hip-hop. So these producers who kind of reject how hip-hop has become sort of EDM-y now on the radio, Mm -hmm. they like the old school boom-bap vinyl feel. They'll use the Amen all the time. So they all think they're sampling, like, 80s music. They think they're sampling N.W.A. And honestly, the Prodigy probably thought they were sampling <laughs> Lenny Dice, you know? Yeah. I think Bowie probably thought he was sampling an EDM song from England. Probably, yeah, English, that he'd right? heard. That's crazy that all these people are like, oh, yeah, I'm going to create this callback song. and Callback gonna... to five years ago, my boy. Yeah, which was actually a callback to, you know, right. 10 years ago, which was 1980s hip-hop, and callback to actually literally a 1969 funk B-side. Think... That's insane. So, what about the Winstons? Yeah. Are they listening to, like, the radio and they're like, that was my drummer? Like I said, after the Winstons broke up, all the musicians in the band went their separate ways in the early 70s. Unfortunately, none of them ever really made it big as musicians. Most of them retired from music within the next couple of years. And none of them ever tried to sue any artist who used this sample. The first thing is, there were no laws about sampling in the Mm. 80s, because sampling was not a thing. Mm Mm-hmm. There were laws about plagiarism. So if somebody played a guitar riff and you played that same guitar riff in your song, sure, yeah, you could do a lawsuit for that. But there wasn't anything about like three seconds of a song. I'm not stealing a tune. I'm not really stealing a whole beat even. I'm just taking this little bit, changing it, rearranging it, and making it 
this little bit, there was no context for that because the sampler was invented in the 80s. If you copy a full paragraph Mm -hmm. and then paste it into your book, you're fucked. If you copy even a sentence and paste it into your book, you're fucked. But if you copy five words and then you change those words around, Mm -hmm. well, that's a new sentence. It is. Right. So that's sort of the legal problem with this. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And so there was no context for sampling laws until 1990. And we're bringing back Sir David Bowie. Okay. Because Sir David Bowie and the band Queen sued Vanilla Ice. Yeah. For Ice Ice Baby. Dun, 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 dun. Yeah. They didn't officially win. It was settled privately out of court. But what we do know is every time Ice Ice Baby shows up on a record or a movie now, it's credited to Vanilla Ice, his DJ, and Queen and David Bowie. Mm-hmm. So they won. But that was in 1990. Mm-hmm. And all of those hip-hop examples I mentioned were in the 80s. And so by the time there was American legal precedent for sampling, the Amen had already kind of flown across the mm-hmm. sea to England. And the early electronic music pioneers, their shit wasn't making it over here. They were in little underground clubs. And so all of these genres sort of boomed without a lot of American knowledge until bands like The Prodigy got popular over here. So the copyright owner of yeah. the Winston's music was Richard Spencer, not a racist, the lead singer. Okay. and the moment somebody pointed out to him or he realized it himself not entirely clear that this drum loop from a b-side of one of his albums from the 60s is everywhere according to him was 1996 really the guy probably heard american hip-hop and didn't realize Mm -hmm. that was his drummer on his recording if i just play like a time that we fart on the podcast whose fart was it obviously yours i don't fart yeah you do they're just quiet and sneaky like you (laughs) (laughs) so richard spencer not the racist first realized that that was an audio recording he owned in 96 that's nuts but by 1996 yeah it was in every other song on the radio 30 years later it was such a common musical meme that it's very hard to prosecute because think about it you hear it in a song and you go where'd you get that well i got it from a sample from this song Mm -hmm. where'd that guy get it well i got it from the sample cd that i bought from this company where'd that company get well i got it from this company they all think they're paying homage to somebody from three years ago from 30 years ago and they have no idea well the thing is none of them paid anything remember when i said it was sold on hip-hop sample tapes in 1986 i'm assuming that was unregulated oh of course it was okay (laughs) well because who cared about hip-hop it was a little underground thing yeah well so who cared about electronica in england a little underground thing So it was very hard to sue because there was no paper trail. And by the time he realized that was his recording, it was fucking everywhere. It was ubiquitous in pop culture. It was international. Yeah. And also, most of the time, it's been heavily altered. Straight Outta Compton does not sound like Amen Brother, you know? The Prodigy's Minefield sounds nothing like Amen Brother. Amen is like musical Slenderman. It just spread without any intention whatsoever and became a thing in culture where you can't control it anymore. That drummer... On one random session. It was improvised. Of just jamming. Yep. Accidentally. something that 30 plus years later is now out of hand and in everybody's brain. I think I'm broken. Not done yet. So, biggest bummer of the day. The drummer, Gregory Coleman, never found any success after music. And tragically, he died broke and homeless in Atlanta, Georgia in 2006. There's what? Not a, there's not a happy ending for the actual drummer. What we, happened? Why we, was we, he homeless? Why are we, we don't know. I can find no information on it. Pretty much everything about his life is sort of relayed by Richard Spencer. They had one hit. They had some money at the time. They never had another hit. They all kind of gave up. And we don't know what he did post-music. We don't really know much about his life. Oh, my heart. That's sort of the randomness of fate, right? Yeah. So that's the biggest bummer I have. Richard Spencer. Not a racist. <laughs> The saxophone player and singer, founder of the band and copyright holder of the music, is doing just fine. He's great. Good. And he's still alive. Good. 
after the Winstons, he pretty much quit music like the rest of them. He went back to school. He got his bachelor's and his master's, and he eventually got a PhD in political science, so he's Dr. Spencer. Oh, no shit! After a career in academia, he eventually became a high school teacher in his hometown of Wadesboro, North Carolina. Had a successful career there. Retired in 2009, and he's written two novels, according to his own LinkedIn. (laughs) he was recently quoted when asking him about the whole amen break it's not the worst thing that can happen to you i'm a black man in america and the fact that somebody wants to use something i created that's flattering so in 2015 two british djs by the name of martin webster and steve theobald set up a gofundme because there was no way to make a legal claim to the rights of the Amen break for reasons aforementioned. But these two DJs had been using his break as most DJs had. And so they set up a GoFundMe to attempt to pay him back a little bit. And it's called the Winston's Amen Breakbeat Gesture. They went on the radio in the UK where all this kind of started. And they openly encouraged DJs to use the Amen and fans of songs that use the Amen to donate what they could. So the goal was a thousand pounds originally. And... They ended up raising 24,000 pounds, which is a bit over $30,000 American, and they delivered him a giant cartoonish check. (laughs) And after that Kickstarter, a second one started, and it's still going. This is current. Like, I could go online right now and donate? Absolutely. So far, it's up to 5,000 pounds. Unfortunately, we can't send it to Gregory Coleman anymore, but we can send it to the band leader 50 years later. Through the internets. The name of the fundraiser is the Amen Breakbeat Gesture Part 2. You can find it on GoFundMe. I'd highly encourage you to, because I guarantee you grew up with songs using this sound. So, really, this is a conversation about copyright infringement and who gets credit for what, Mm -hmm. right? I'm not going to fault early DJs for using this incredible beat to make new music, Mm -hmm. because they didn't have a lot of resources, and they didn't have... Easy access to a drummer and a drum set. And at that point, the beat was 20 years old. It kind Mm -hmm. of been forgotten about. Like I said, it was a dusty vinyl in basements and attics, and what the early producers did with it was incredible. But this is not a new thing. It's been happening for years, and I don't think the people who use phrases appropriated from earlier music are at fault. So... The song Amen Brother by the Winstons, the most sampled song in history, itself was kind of plagiarized. What we're going to do is we are going to listen to the song Amen Brother by the Winstons and pay particular attention to the horns. I recognize it the second you played that for me, and it's been driving me nuts the entire time you've been talking. Right. I said at the very beginning, several of the Winston's guys got their start as the backing band for The Impressions. So, here's a song from 1964 by The Impressions. That's Amen by the Impressions. The, uh, so Amen Brother was a horn version of the song by the Impressions. Right, without credit. <laughs> Here's my point. There is no musician who does not borrow from the past. There is no creativity that is not informed by your predecessors. Yeah. 
they were doing a very loose improvised cover of a mm-hmm. song that some of the members used to play mm-hmm. in a band owned by somebody else. Yeah, they were jamming. They were jamming. They used something that they had heard from the past that was familiar, that they all kind of knew, mm-hmm. to create a new composition in much the same way that NWA did with the Amen Break. And from that inspiration source kind of made magic. Yeah. Now it's part of a musical legacy. And At this point, it's an ingredient in a very good recipe. And I do actually believe that really, really strict copyright on that kind of thing kind of damages creativity. I can see that. To a certain extent. Because it's very, very hard to borrow from the past and make something new anymore. <laughs> My mind is just completely blown. So that's the amen break. Amen. <laughs> okay. What you got, girl? Still riding off the high of your story. It's wild, right? Yeah. Teach me something. I'm going to teach you something. Today, I'm talking about the blue whale challenge. Is that to fuck a blue whale? <laughs> no, and they'd be terrifying because they're huge. I feel like I'm up to it. Also terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> I'm terrified of whales. Yeah, they're a terrible country. Their language makes no damn sense. Oh my God, no. <laughs> JK, we're cool with the Welsh. Yeah, we like Welsh. I'm terrified of the creature that is a whale that lives in the ocean, but I found this really fascinating. Blue Whale Challenge is a social media challenge that kind of reared its head in 2016. So we're all familiar with social media challenges. We have the Tide Pod Challenge. Challenge. Uh, I think recently I saw kind of a moral panic article about the Benadryl Challenge, which is kids taking too much Benadryl so they can get stoned, basically. Read an article or two and I was like, oh, this is just a moral panic. I think similar with most of these things, there's like two or three kids who actually do something stupid Mm. and then it gets linked into something bigger and then it becomes a moral panic. Mm. Local news reports it because it happened in their town that gets picked up by national news. Exactly. It's awful. I thought you would really enjoy this kind of topic, but I actually got really deep into the whole of the psychology of the moral panic, (laughs) which I'm going to start off with because in order to understand exactly why social media challenges are an issue and why the Blue Whale Challenge specifically blew up the way it did in 2016. R.I.P. 2016. Oh, God. Remember when we thought 2016 was the worst year (laughs) ever? And that was 2020. We're like, what? I I would love 2016 back. (laughs) Yeah, fine with it. Yeah, yeah. Give me me that shit back. So I'm going to give you kind of like a grounding of what a moral panic is, which I think you and I both know and we're both fascinated by. I know the basics, but I'm sure you'll teach me something. Yeah. For anybody who hasn't gotten into the topic of moral panic, we're talking about things like the satanic panic. Pizzagate, children being adopted for pedophile rings, the effects of music lyrics and video games on kids. So morality is right and wrong. The definition of panic is uncontrollable fear or anxiety, often causing wildly unthinking behavior. Mm. So at the root, something that is a moral panic is an anxiety that is uncontrollable that causes wildly ridiculous behavior about something that is right and wrong. The Karen is a stereotype, but it's rooted in a real thing. Mm-hmm. I would say that frequently the base reasoning for a quote-unquote Karen behaving the way that they are is because they are panicking about morality. That is a way that they view the world. I want to know about this. What the fuck is a blue whale challenge? I know. Okay, so (laughs) I'm going to kind of tease into it like you did. Me fucker. (laughs) So the term was founded, the earliest one that I could find was 1830 in the Quarterly Christian Spectator. Good sign. Right. So in 1972, sociologist Stanley Cohen released a book called Folk Devils and Moral Panic. In that book, it suggests that the media overreacts to certain aspects of behavior which may be seen as challenging to the social norms. Sure, yeah. And the way that the media handles that is to overreact to it Mm. because it gets views and it gets money. So moral panics are actually also monetarily driven. Mm. But I thought what's really cool was Stanley Cohen, he actually has 
marked stages of what a moral panic involves. So kind of like you have stages of grief. There are stages of a moral panic, which I thought was really interesting. I've never read this before. I've never heard this. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So someone or something is defined as a threat to the social norms or a community. Hmm. That threat is then depicted in a simple, recognizable form or symbol by the media. So you have an issue that is viewed as a threat and you boil it down like a very delicious meat sauce mm. into a certain symbol, a of name. A target. It's going to sound really familiar to what we're hearing in the news lately. God damn it. Antifa, the Proud Boys. Exactly. Um, it's simple. This is the identify Exactly. Point this your weapons there. Precisely. So this symbol, for example, a swastika. I would say a Confederate flag. Yes. Symbol equals concern. Community starts getting bolstered. The response from authorities and policymakers become expounded. So the community is concerned. They have to appeal to the people in charge of the community have to appeal to the community. Right. This symbol is being legitimized by people in charge. Uh So all of a sudden, something that was a non issue, or at least like very small, a few people, is compounded into a larger thing and we put a branding on it. People become concerned by this brand. The authorities have to acknowledge this brand because people vote them in office Mm. and pay their bills. Yeah. The figures in charge legitimize it by acknowledging that it is a concerning thing. Cue the moral panic over this similar issue, and it results in actual change in the community. Right. So, riots. In the the case of the satanic panic, multiple false convictions where people who did nothing wrong were in jail for decades. Yeah. So, criminalizing, basically, the original issue. Which was pretty much a non-issue. Yes. And the weird thing is, this is from 1972. So wow. This is a 50-year-old book. <laughs> we haven't learned shit. Yep. God damn it. <laughs> so I thought you'd find that interesting. because you know Very much so. It's very visible mm. exactly how these things are created. Mm. And we can see this in literally news from yesterday. Remember that shit? There was the wagon train coming up from Mexico to invade our borders. Wait, what was that bullshit? I we freaked out about it and it was nothing? Um, yeah. So characteristics of a moral panic. Okay. Concern. You believe that the thing that is supposedly deviant to your society will negatively affect your community. Concern is the biggest part. My neighbor's gay and I'm scared of him because I'm not gay. Right. That sounds like an issue. Hmm. You're not like me. My interest is intrigued. Right. I'm going to pay attention to this at least. Hostility. Towards the group or thing that's in question. Why aren't you like me? Exactly. Why don't you love pussy? Like I do. It's them versus us. And then people or groups or things become the folk devils. Mm -hmm. I am the moral good. Mm-hmm. You are obviously against my moral good. Because I'm the center of the goddamn universe. Yep. So consensus. We all agree that they, the folk devils, are concerning and they are a threat to us. I talked to all my pussy-loving neighbors. Yep. And they agree that sucking dick as a man is a bad thing. Precisely. Acceptance among each other that this is a genuine, real, reality-based threat to our society. Are they going to make me suck dicks? I don't like that. Exactly. And out of that, very frequently come what he called moral entrepreneurs. Oh, God. Right. So... So this is when you start preaching on television, when you get the local politicians speaking out against a specific thing. I believe sucking dick is bad. And if you don't like sucking dicks, you should go with me. Vote for me because I don't like sucking dick. And that guy likes sucking dick and he is the devil because we all don't like sucking dick. There you go. So disproportionality. So actions taken disproportionate to the actual threat proposed by the group. So for example, if we're going to go with gay marriage and the moral panic surrounding that one, legitimately, realistically, It does nothing to affect our society, period. The moral panic about it was it will completely deteriorate the idea of marriage. You disproportionately treat the non-existent threat Mm. 
more than it is actually a threat to your society. You cannot allow the laws of the United States of America to legitimize dick sucking or else we'll all eventually be forced to suck dicks all day. And furthermore, if we all have to suck dicks, we'll all start beating our kids because it's a slippery slope. And then we'll all start fucking our own dogs and horses. There'll be fire and brimstone raining from the sky, dogs and cats sleeping together. Complete pandemonium. <laughs> Anyways, disproportional reaction to the actual threat, which is not an actual threat. And then you get volatility. Mm. So they flame out quickly because usually... It's only financially responsible to do this for oh so long. People lose interest. Mm. Most of the panics are proven to not actually be panic worthy. The threat isn't actually there. And then they... But it made these five moms on this block. Yes. Or these six dads on that block. Or these 25,000 people in this private Facebook group freak out. Oh, God. The internet's terrible, isn't it? The moral panic has become more insane since the development of social media. These five people on this block all agree this is a concern. Mm Mm-hmm. Nobody else in the neighborhood cares, but the next neighborhood over, there's four people who also have the same concern. The reason these things explode is if one contact makes one other contact. You get into the echo chamber. Puts out a flyer. This is the issue with a lot of social media. Because you can just find the thing that tells you you're right. And they keep repeating to you in a mirror that you are correct, and there is a reason you're panicked, and then you work yourself up, and you need to attack what is supposedly attacking you, which is nothing. that's what makes them money. Exactly. Recent examples, hidden dangers of modern technology, the 5G scare, that it literally makes people get coronavirus. Alexa is spilling your secrets to the FBI. The creepy, creepy, creepy dangers of what my laptop is going to do to me or what my phone's going to do to me. Let you access pornography, which is... <laughs> which is the best part of my best phone. part of it. <laughs> yeah. Evil strangers manipulating the innocent, so... Stranger danger. Stranger danger. Mm. Vans. And the hidden world of anonymous people. So oh, 4chan. <laughs> 4chan, QAnon, Antifa... Because they're all hidden and they're unknown or we don't know the reasons for them. Or a couple things happen and so we correlate them. Correlation, not causation, is usually an issue with moral panic. Exactly. Quick, noticeable examples, ones that people would be aware of. Communism, the Red Scare. McCarthyism. Mm -hmm. That's a huge moral panic that turned out to be fucking nothing. The Devil's Music is a huge moral panic from the 1940s to now. Oh, it was jazz in the 40s, yeah? Yeah, it was jazz. It was rock. It was hip hop. Now it's music. All that sex music on TikTok. Yes, and it still continues. It's a non-existent threat. Music does not affect a personality to the point of dictating how they will act morally. It never has, it never will. But it continues to be a very widespread moral panic. So fuck your parents and don't do that to your kids. Don't fuck your parents, that's incest. (laughs) (laughs) Other examples, Halloween candy tampering. Needles in the candy. Needles in the candy, razors and apples. Never happened. It would have happened like twice. That, That moral panic was extremely popular in the 70s, 80s. It's still something that we hear about today. Violence in video games, creating violence in the individual. I literally had a note that says, don't let Todd go off on this topic. Perfect example of that (laughs) is Video Game Postal, which was a parody of the moral panic of violent video games. Very, very violent game that was a parody of what they were afraid video games were, and then they panicked about it. Mm -hmm. I love it. (laughs) Go Postal. Um, So early 2000s, we had this panic in the US about bulldogs and pit bulls being dogs that you're not supposed to have, and they're a huge issue. Rip your throat out. That actually started in the UK. So UK in the 80s and 90s, they had a huge campaign against pit bulls and Rottweilers specifically Mm. as dangerous dogs, and it was a moral panic about those two breeds, and it spread to the United States. There's still laws about that here now. Yeah, there are county laws about that that actually started in the UK. Fun moral panic fact. Sure. (laughs) We love dogs and dogs are amazing and there are no bad dogs, they're bad owners. Mm. Info at poopoopointless.com. I want to see your puppies. At poopoopointless on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Yeah, let's go. Hail. Why the fuck am I bringing all this up? There's some whales involved. Uh, I play a mobile game and I have for about two years now, daily, because I'm a nerd. It's a big community. Uh, It is a huge 
RPG. Anyways, I was checking the subreddit like I always do, and somebody posted that supposedly the Blue Whale Challenge from 2016 had breached our community right. in 2020. And I'd read about this in 2016, and I was like, okay, well, this died out. Like, this wasn't a thing. And everyone starts freaking out about it. And they're like, we have to save the 12-year-olds who play the game. And right. Save the children. Sounds like a I was like, panic. Exactly. Quick warning. The Blue Whale Challenge deals with self-harm and suicide. If you have personal issues talking about self-harm and suicide, please stop listening now. And don't kill yourself. We like you. Yeah, we love you. You're great. <laughs> Anyways, so it kind of fascinated me that I'm like, I heard about this four years ago, and all of a sudden, two months ago, I'm seeing this pop up on my Reddit, like, all of these 25 plus women and men in my mobile gaming group being concerned about the 12-year-olds playing the game committing suicide. And I was like, what's going on? Feels a little slender man-y. It is. Love it. <laughs> I thought you would really enjoy this. So, what in the fucking world is the Blue Whale Challenge first reported about in 2016 as a social network game that was aimed at teenagers? The idea was that administrators or curators would assign teenagers 50 tasks to complete in 50 days. Sounds innocent, right? So, this could be day one, brush your teeth. Day two... Make your bed, right? Uh, yeah, this is something super innocent. Mm. For this one specifically, some of the initial tasks were watch a scary movie. Task two, wake up in the middle of the night and text somebody. They would then morph into something like stand on the ledge of a building and take photographic evidence of it. Or physically cut a whale into your arm. So they got dark. Like by day seven, you're harming yourself or something. Right. And the 50th task was suicide. Kill yourself. Yes. By that point, you're indoctrinated in theory. Precisely, slowly it morphs into something evil, and eventually a teenager commits suicide. The scary thing about that is it'll work. It's Nexium. I think that's why this blew up so much. Right. The idea that people were driving teenagers, a very vulnerable subset of individuals, Uh to suicide over the internet, which is anonymous, as we just discussed. Moral panic deals a lot with the hidden dangers of technology and people targeting children. Caveat for those listening, do not report what I am saying is truth. This is the story, and this is not proven to be true, so please keep this in mind the entire time I'm right. talking. The Blue Whale Challenge is not a truth. Most of the Tide Pod Challenge was also not a truth. Right. Most of the Benadryl Challenge was not a truth. But it's scary because it's super plausible, man. This is the issue. Mm. So where the fuck did this come from? Right, because obviously you have news reports and people talking about the Blue Whale Challenge, but right. all these challenges or conspiracy theories originate somewhere. So, November 22nd, 2015, there was a 17-year-old named Rina Palankova from Southeast Russia. She posted a selfie on the Facebook of Russia called Vikantante. I know VK. Yes, VK is the Facebook of Russia. Mm. She is wearing legit headphones, dark fuchsia beanie, and she's got her black scarf wrapped around the bottom of her face. Her finger looks like it's covered in blood, and she's flipping off the camera. Russian chick being a badass. Yeah, and she happens to be in a train track area. The caption to the photo just said, Nya. Yeah, yeah, bye. Minutes later, she killed herself. How? She ran into an incoming train. Dang. It's heartbreaking. I'm sorry, Rena. Yeah, so she passed away. Well, trains do that. (laughs) They do. (laughs) The train conductor saw her doing it. He tried to stop the train. He couldn't do it in time. Her death was obviously discussed all over VK. Turns out there were a ton of groups on VK that deal with darker subjects. The paranormal and death and being a teenager and being sad and dealing with depression. Whatever you associate with. Yeah. And so on VK in a variety of groups, people start posting about Rena specifically because it's a horrifying thing to realize that somebody posts a picture two minutes before they kill themselves. Yeah. That's horrifying. But it starts being taken and adopted by other people and other media. Specifically, why did this beautiful young girl 
commit oh. suicide. The picture is charismatic looking enough. Yeah, exactly. It looks like a good Instagram photo. It looks like a martyr. Exactly. And so that photo is taken to the extreme right. by multiple groups on Russian social media because mm. nobody really knew why she killed herself. Mm. There was no information. It was just the nearby caption and then... She was probably just depressed. She was depressed. They do eventually do an investigation. They figure out that her boyfriend at the time, they didn't have a good relationship and they had separated and she was more depressed than they thought. But that doesn't really matter because she's become something bigger than that. The post is public. Fact and fiction start blurring. I heard. Yeah, exactly. I heard this. I heard this. It starts getting shared to different groups outside of their community. Some people start lauding her ending her life. Like, I didn't have the guts to do this, but congrats for her for doing it. Like, they start celebrating it. People start stealing videos that she'd previously posted, creating fake videos, saying that they were her final moments. She just kind of becomes a phenom of suicidal ideation on Russian Facebook. Stories of Rina's death, they start merging with other teen suicides in Russia. And this is kind of where we start getting into the conspiracy theory. Okay. These are the roots. Yes. So Christmas Day, 2015, a 12-year-old named Angelina Davidovia killed herself in Ryazan. I made notes to try to pronounce this as correctly uh. as I could. Her parents <laughs> later examined her Vicontante account. Yeah. And they found that her and Rina were part of very similar online groups. They were groups that had drawings of Rena, fan art of her last photos that she posted before she killed herself. You know, people do fan art. Deviant art. Literally. And I found at least 12 of them that are beautiful, but it's just the idea of drawing fan art of that. They're not like, let's look at this as an example yeah. of a bad thing. They're idolizing. Exactly. So this poor 12-year-old who did kill herself was part of online groups. And those groups had drawings of Rena and a lot of posts about suicide. Right. And for some reason, these groups also mention blue whales. Okay. From what we found after four years of researching, there's no direct connection that anyone can label between suicidal tendencies and Vicontante, Russian culture, and why whales are mentioned. There is some speculation that scientists don't really know why whales beach themselves, but they do commit suicide, basically. Also, whales are seen as solitary creatures, usually. It's easy, especially as a young child, to identify with a solitary creature. Mm. They just see these photos of these beautiful creatures Huge. in the deep, dark blue ocean, which is similar to space. And it's, yeah. it's fantastical. It's melancholy. So it's easy to identify with a whale. Right. As a loner. As a sad, young loner, lost in the middle of nowhere. Afloat in a sea of hormones Nothing. and depression. Yeah. It makes sense. Yeah. There also is a reference to the lyrics from a Russian rock band called Lumen, and the song is called Burn, and the translated lyrics that I found were, we can be silent, we can sing, stay or run away, but we still burn. A big blue whale can't break the chain, surrender or not, but still burn. Maybe the kids listen to this song. Oh, no. This is when they thought Iron Maiden, maybe Jewish Priest, I don't know, there was some metal album that they thought backwards, it says, kill yourself. Mm-hmm. This yeah. is why I started with the background uh, of a moral panic. You can see the triggers. I'm already frustrated. Exactly. This is before it's hit mainstream media. This like is just the background. Russian chat groups. Or this is just Russian Facebook groups. Right, right. Little nebulous yep. particles. This has not hit mainstream media yet. No one had really tied suicide to whales. Uh, yeah, no. Because you wouldn't. Until 2016. God damn it. So there's an article written by Galina Mersaleva in May of 2016 for the Novaya Gazeta, which is like the new newspaper. This sent the entire story into huge moral panic territory. <laughs> Shit. Keep in mind, Rena had committed suicide in November 2015. 
Right. And this is May 2016 when the article is written. A year later, somebody needs a puff piece. Yeah. So here we go with the moral panic. Galena writes this story about social media death groups on Vicantante. The death groups have names like F57 and Ocean Whales. She suggests that inside these VK Facebook groups, there's a game where curators would set 50 tasks over 50 days. And the last task is for these group members to take their lives. Is there any evidence in those groups at all? No. Yep. There is no... There's nothing. Please take nothing of what I'm saying as fact that this is an actual thing. I'm explaining a moral panic that happened, not a factual incident. Moral panics are cousins of conspiracy theories. Conspiracy theories are just organized moral panics. Mm. So what happened? So Galena, her article also reported that an estimated 130 children may have killed themselves between November 2015 and April 2016 because of their participation in these Vicontante groups. You can say VK, you don't have to say it every time. Oh, I just started enjoying saying Vicontante. <laughs> it's Vicontact. Oh, yeah, Vicontante. So after I read about it, I was like, oh, it's actually kind of fun to say. Yeah. Um, I did find her article. This is going to sound strange due to it being translated, but this is an accurate translation from what I've found from multiple sources. The article is called Death Groups 18 and Over. People somehow learned how to cope with giant dumps of radioactive waste, but having moved partially to the internet, they started them here as well. Adults most often come here without receiving radiation, work, socialize, and they go out. The children followed the adults and mistook the swamp lights for lights. They lost their way. They breathe in these dumps, and then they die. This dump is a huge community of numerous groups on the Vicantante social network, both closed and open, pushing children to suicide. As in any professional communities, there are quarrels and intrigues between them. They call each other charlatans, believing, probably, that they themselves are professionals. Only, given the number of children who attend these groups and eventually passed away, they really are professionals in this area, no matter how blasphemous it may sound. But who are these people? Spiritual monsters? Maniacs? Sectarians? Fascists? Uh, I'm not going to say she's wrong. (laughs) That was the exact issue I had. I was reading this translation. I was like, social media is a radioactive dumpster fire. Like, I'm not disagreeing. The issue is, I would completely agree with her if she was just an angry mom posting on social media. She's a journalist in a very well-known and trusted news empire. Mm. The article was obviously criticized for lacking credible data and for being extremely biased, because it was. The Russian Gazeta reported that, quote-unquote, at least 80 of those suicides were linked to these blue whale games, but Radio Free Europe found that no suicides had been definitively linked to these online communities. It was not a thing. Okay, so what were the links for these 80? Right, more than 80. Galena estimated 130. So do you want to know where the number comes from? I super do, dude. <laughs> Let's talk I about figured. it. So the 130 number actually was super problematic. It came from a suggestion by a father of a teen who had committed suicide. His name was Sergei Pestov. He started searching every Russian media source he could find for children's suicides. There are lots. If you and I sat here and Research researched te- Washington suicides, let alone United right. States suicides, it would overwhelm us. There's several a week. So he researched every <laughs> suicide that he could find in that range of years. And then what he personally believed that he could link to online VK groups, he yeah. did, and he counted them. This is a father who's lost his daughter going through trauma, and he's looking for a reason. Mm-hmm. He will see causation when there is none. 
So this journalist, may she call herself that, she believed that, and then she reported in a national newspaper. Sounds like she had one source. That's the issue. That's bad journalism. This father also made a brochure which implied that foreign intelligence operatives were responsible for encouraging Russian children to commit suicide. Oh, for fuck's sake. Does this sound familiar? Very much so. Okay. Needless to say, despite widespread criticism in Russia, Mm. the article was posted and it exploded. You can post an article that's crap science with no peer review on the internet and everybody who actually has any knowledge in the sector that you're talking about can criticize it all they want. The problem is if people are engaged with it, Mm -hmm. they'll propagate it. Yes. Of course, it's very emotionally Mm -hmm. driving. You read that and you get concerned and you feel empathy and you want to do something. Mm -hmm. The idea of a social media challenge for teenagers Mm. that ended in suicide with the quote-unquote evidence of multiple suicides happening around that same timeline exploded. The governor of Uyanovsk, which is in West Russia, went on national Russian television and compared the Blue Whale Challenge to the Islamic State. Oh, God. So this singular article connecting multiple teen suicides in Russia to a supposed social media game... That never really existed. That was never proven to exist. Right. Exploded to the point where it was being reported on nationally. By a government official. So as we were talking earlier... Son of a bitch. May I go back to our stages of moral panic? So we've hit number four. Responses from authorities and policymakers. Yeah. Unfortunately, due to this official of Russia confirming and acknowledging the Blue Whale Challenge, this spreads internationally. Mm. So panic spreads outside of Russia, with news sources eventually reporting on quote-unquote cases from Bangladesh, Brazil, China, Egypt, India, Iran, Italy, Saudi Arabia, Tunisia, and the United States. Teen suicide is international. Mm -hmm. Big news, apparently. This got to the U.S. in terms of a 16-year-old in Georgia Mm. who also killed herself. She had painted a meter-high painting of blue whales all over her room. More teens also committed suicide shortly after, including a girl in Russia who had posted images of a blue whale on her Instagram. So... We're left with multiple teen suicides, many of which have had blue whale images all after the 2016 article had tied blue whales and suicide to each other. Then all of these other teen suicides and blue whale attachments happened. Finally, in November of 2016, 21-year-old psychology student Philip Budikin was arrested and charged with inciting teen suicide, claimed he invented the blue whale challenge in 2013. Right, that's my exact reaction. <laughs> For the listeners at home, I just mimed jacking off because this guy's clearly just inflating his ego. Mm-hmm. He said his intention was to cleanse society by pushing kids to suicide. Later, he claimed that he was just having fun. He pled guilty in May of 2017, and he was sentenced to three years in prison. He was riding the meme wave. Basically, yes. And I don't know why you would agree to this. Well, I don't know why you would show up to a march in Charlottesville, even though you don't have any affiliation with Southern conservative, keep the statutes kind of people, or any white supremacist kind of people. But there were a bunch of guys there who just showed up because they thought it would be inflammatory and they thought it would make them more important. Mm. So this sounds like one of those guys. 
So around the same time, there was a post on Reddit that actually copy and pasted supposedly all 50 tasks from the Contante group F57. And I thought it would be kind of interesting to read a couple. This person translated them from Russian. That sounds amazing. Yeah, let's go. Um, so one was on the arm, cut F57. Number eight, write the status hashtag I'm a whale. Number 10 was get up at 420 and go to the roof. 420s. Yeah. Number 14, cut the lip. That hurts. Number 16, make yourself hurt. Go to work. Number 21, talk on Skype with a whale. Vague. Scary. Number 11, scratch out a whale on the hand. Number 26, you say the date of death and you must accept it. Number 29... Give an oath that you're a whale. From number 30 to 49, every day you wake up at 420, you watch scary videos, listen to music every day, doing one cut on your hand while talking to a fellow whale. Number 50, we jump, hands up, jump out of the window, you go into the train, negative tablet. Wait, that's the translation. That's the translation, yeah. I mean, of course it's dog shit nonsense, but it's just spooky enough. Yeah, really enough. Uh, an investigative journalist named Evgenji Berg, hmm. he disputed Philip's incarceration. The 21-year-old who was like, I created the game in 2013 and got incarcerated in 2016, 2017. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he said it was all of him. He evidently had posted a ton of shock content related to the original suicide victim just to get followers. He wants the likes, He wants the clicks. And he also had music. So he was posting tons of stuff about her just to get followers for him and his music. Was his music any good? No. Well, I assumed so, because usually when your music's good, you don't do shit like that. You don't take advantage of 17-year-old suicide victims. I agree completely. No, that's... Yeah, fuck this guy. Yeah. He originally had 15 charges, and within a month, all but one of those charges had collapsed. All of them had just gone away. He said that he was in charge of the Blue Whale Challenge. He said that he'd incited multiple teens to commit suicide, and none of them stuck. Of course none of them stuck. None of them stuck. Yeah. Because he was just... He made it up. He was a troll. Yeah. He was an online troll. Uh, Weirdly enough... A few individuals were arrested in relation to doing something similar to the Blue Whale suicide challenge. Mm. In 2017, Ilya Sidorov was arrested in Moscow for setting up a Blue Whale challenge group to encourage suicide of teens. Claimed to persuade 32 children to join his group and follow his commands. Mm. 2018, a financial analyst, Nikita Niarnov, was arrested for allegedly masterminding a Blue Whale challenge of his own. He's suspected of grooming at least 10 underage girls to suicide, two of which actually survived. They were 14 and 17, respectively. He was said to be a computer expert who held contempt for teenagers, believing that they were wicked and they deserved to die. I mean, I'm not going to argue with them, but, like, don't kill people. Eventually, it was found out by Professor Alexandra Arkhipova at the Russian State University for the Humanities that the original 2016 Blue Whale Challenge Mm -hmm. administrators were found to be children aged 12 to 14. A fucking course they were. I know, I know, I know, I know, right? A fucking course they were 13-year-old kids. Of course kids were attracted to the story that sounded terrifying and horrible on social media. These 13-year-old kids were using this to freak out their friends like a campfire story. So where the fuck does this leave us, right? We've gotten this moral panic. There are some suicides in Russia. There have been people reporting on crazy shit. The issue is nobody has been able to prove that any challenge, blue whale or not, has ever happened. Period. This is not real. There's no evidence of it. The blue whale challenge does not exist. In 2016 or in 2020, despite people being in jail, it originally was never a thing. Similar to the Benadryl challenge. Yeah. Similar to the Tide Pod challenge. There's no evidence that the Blue Whale challenge has ever been a thing. Right. Go ahead. 
I know you want to. An idea is not real. It doesn't have any actual power in itself. It's just what you think. It's in your head. But if you convince enough people to believe in an idea and you put it out there into the world and you talk to your friends about it, yada, 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 well, at some point it gains power to impact actual corporeal reality. That's the issue I have with this Hmm. is a news report said that this is true. Multiple people realized that the Blue Whale Challenge could be a thing. Because it was plausible. Right. And then they enacted on it in reality. And judging by these people who have been arrested, Mm -hmm. they made what was an idea and was a social media idiocy a reality. And then they actually encouraged people to kill themselves. The concept gained critical mass. That's the issue that I have with moral panics and social media. That's my story. Goddamn. Bunch of dumbasses on the internet sharing memes and such, afraid of kids killing themselves, and in the end, actually causing kids to kill themselves because they could not regulate their goddamn fear. Cool story, bro. Story of his cool funk band who make this random jam, create something monumental and changing the history of music as we know it, and not asking for anything in return. Cool story, bro. Pew. <laughs>